One of the important issues for vulnerable adults is that they're able to have a voice and participate in decision making which affects their lives. The next speaker describes the work of her organisation, which supports adults with learning difficulties. My name's Becky Powell, and I work with Camden and Westminster Citizen Advocacy. We purely provide advocates for adults with a learning disability. The aim is to find a person from the local community to be linked on a one-to-one, long-term basis with an adult with a learning disability. The friendship that follows a long-term partnership allows the individuals on both sides, because it is a two-way process, it allows both individuals to actually communicate better with each other. So the longer you know them as a citizen advocate, the better you'll be able to understand their wishes, their concerns, where they want to go and what assistance they need. Becky went on to describe the kind of people who work at Camden and Westminster Citizen Advocacy, the nature of the work undertaken and where referrals are likely to come from. The actual citizen advocates are all volunteers. They're recruited from the local communities. We assess the individuals that have been referred to us and then we go and recruit the volunteers and assist them to build a relationship and a partnership. Once the partnership is made and secure, we will actually take a step backwards and just provide the continued support and supervision and then we continue with monitoring of the friendship or the relationship. There's actually two main areas in which we get the referrals from. The first one is some major issue that a friend or a worker or a professional feels that this adult may need support with. The second is from, for example, key workers in the residential homes or family members, parents, neighbours who believe that this person isn't having the full opportunities in community open to them. They may feel that they need to get out more often because they only ever go out on weekends or they only ever go to the day centre which they are picked up by social services transport and dropped home at social services transport. And someone may feel that the reason there aren't any complaints, the reason this person isn't saying they don't like what's happening, so they don't actually understand the choices open to them. And that's where the the actual citizen advocacy, the long-term friendship comes in. What does Becky see as the key role or task of the citizen advocate? There's two areas that are quite different with the citizen advocacy. When we have a partnership which involves a volunteer, we step back and leave those to it. We actually have approximately 10 people per borough partnered at the moment. We also have approximately 15 people who are awaiting volunteers. We will not actually leave anyone without support. So as soon as referrals come through and we've made the initial contact, we will actually always provide advocacy for them. So if an issue arose, for example, moving home, we would make sure that I would step in or my colleague would step in while we're waiting for a volunteer. One of the main tasks that the volunteer advocates do is to attend the independent programme plan which is similar to a case conference and in those meetings traditionally the users were generally excluded so we're trying to improve on that through putting an advocate there 
and the advocate can say, did you understand that? Okay, let's stop the meeting just while we talk and understand that and use language that is appropriate. And the advocate generally will slow things down and prepare their partner to go into the meeting because it can be very daunting. So the partner will feel more confident because they have a friendly face there and they will know what's going to happen. So it is something that is very important to us. How do professionals such as social workers or lawyers view the involvement of citizen advocates in cases? We find that in most cases they're very understanding. I think they find it hard to use accessible language because it's not part of the culture. If a professional uses professional language all day, it's very difficult to get out of the jargon. So I think it's difficult for them, but we find that generally they're quite understanding once we get there. Some of the bureaucracy can get a bit annoying, um, especially when you consider our volunteers don't understand when they become volunteers how social services work and quite often won't actually recognise the language that's being used either. So that's one of the reasons we prefer to have someone from the community without social care background because when they stop to ask, well, what do you mean by that? the user and the partner and the volunteer are actually equal terms because neither of them know what's going on and both of them are asking to stop and think about it. So it actually works very well. What practice issues are raised for the citizen advocate if service users disclose information which suggests that their welfare or safety is at risk? The advocate has only one person in mind and that is their partner. If their partner said, for example that they were a victim of abuse, then the advocate's task would be to support them in anything they wanted to do. And that would include providing information, talking through information, looking at what options there were for them to turn to and support them through that. If they, adult with a learning disability, didn't actually want it to go any further, then obviously it wouldn't. The choices are made 100% by the service user, by the adult with a learning disability. But we will try to provide all the information that we possibly can to improve their understanding and to improve their options and choices. You're now going to hear about the work of another organisation which supports vulnerable adults. In this case, users of mental health services. My name's Simon Foster. I'm the Principal Solicitor at MIND. MIND was created in 1946 under the name of the National Association for Mental Health. It was an amalgam of some previously existent voluntary organisations brought together following the Second World War with a specific brief for um, service personnel with psychiatric difficulties moving back into the community. It was initially primarily uh, staffed and organised by people with uh, a medical background, but that changed quite drastically in the 19, late 60s and early 1970s when the more radical uh, user movement came to the fore and at that time we took the name MIND in preference to the National Association for Mental Health and we have been increasingly representing a voice for the user of services. I asked Simon who is likely to be involved in the mental health system. It's very difficult to say who gets caught up in the mental health system 
We work from the figures that one in four people have mental health difficulties during the course of their lifetime, and at any one stage, probably around about 12 to 15% of the population is experiencing some form of mental distress. In terms of the composition of the group who engage with mental health services, there is no doubt that there is a greater representation among women and also in certain categories, particularly people who are detained patients, an overrepresentation of people from black and minority ethnic communities. What does Simon see as the issues raised by current practice of those working in the mental health system? We would say that there are several current issues in mental health practice. The most important from our point of view is the way that a medical diagnosis is seen to direct the proposed treatment of somebody asking for assistance. We think that this is very misleading. Um, This is the so-called medical model, which we really don't go along with. We much prefer to see a holistic, person-centred approach, starting with the person's needs and their difficulties they're experiencing, rather than going back to the formal diagnosis. There are several reasons for this, the most important being that an individual can be re-diagnosed by a different psychiatrist, and there are many examples of this, and then that seems to trigger different interventions, different services. There is a well-known campaigner for rights for mental health service users who says he's had five different diagnoses at different times. He hasn't changed, uh, but psychiatric opinion about him has. Another and closely allied concern that we have is that very often it's seen as the professionals making decisions on behalf of the person, that the person is seen as being somehow a passive receiver of services, receiver of interventions. Again, we want to see the individual put at the centre of the services being provided. After all, they are uniquely placed to know what they're experiencing, what they think benefits them and what doesn't. And plainly, other people will have views about this as well. But nevertheless, consulting the service user and putting her or him at the centre of the assessment seems to be essential. Simon then spoke about the kinds of cases Mind gets involved in and why. Very, very occasionally we take on test cases, and this will be a, a probably no more than two or three in a given year. This is where a user of mental health services has hit difficulties because of the state of the law, particularly if a new bit of legislation has been introduced or a court ruling has had what we would regard as undesirable effects, we will then occasionally challenge it on behalf of that person who has been disadvantaged and take that through. Usually, the people we take on are the ones who have, we think, a strong legal argument and no other immediate means of support, so people who don't have a trade union to support them, people who don't have their own financial resources to bring a case privately. How do social workers help service users to access mind services? Social workers can be extremely valuable in telling users of services, people in mental distress, of the range of options available to them for seeking independent support and help. And many social workers we know have minds, telephone numbers and contact details available. We certainly have calls from social workers who are concerned on behalf of their client who they think is missing out on services, and they're asking us for some suggestions, and we're always very happy to do that. I asked Simon, what are some of the main problems for people caught up in the mental health system? For somebody who is experiencing mental distress, there are 
any number of things they're having to contend with. There's the effects of the condition itself, which can be frightening, alarming, terrifying in some cases. In addition to that, there's the way that they're regarded by people around them, the whole stigma of mental illness, which can so easily be put upon somebody who is going through a difficult enough time at the best of times. On top of that, the common perception is that the professionals who are making decisions about the individual's care and treatment seem to do this without reference back to the individual, what the individual wants, in a way that would not be the case if somebody was suffering from diabetes or cancer or a broken leg or indeed in distress for other reasons, if there'd been a family breakup, etc. I would say, therefore, that when somebody is in this sort of vulnerable state, it is very important for them to realise that they don't cease to have legal rights. They have just as much legal rights as any other citizen to say what they want, to say no to things they don't want. The law does provide certain powers for them to be taken to hospital and given medication and other treatment without their consent, any way that the individual can be supported to exercise their civil rights and claim their own human dignity as an individual in society is very much to be welcomed, we say. Simon then spoke about the role and work of the Mental Health Commission. The Mental Health Commission was set up in 1983 by the Secretary of State for Health and the Commissioner's primary responsibility is to supervise the welfare of those who have been detained under the Mental Health Act. The commissioners visit all psychiatric wards where there are detained patients and mental nursing homes where there are detained patients. They speak to patients, they speak to staff, and they investigate concerns and complaints which have reached them around the conditions in which people are being kept under detention. The individual service user and patient in hospital has an absolute right to make a complaint to the Commission, to ask the Commission to look into matters. The Commission then has a discretion whether, in fact, they will follow this up. Sometimes they say this is outside the scope of our work, we're not allowed to. Sometimes they will say we are allowed to do this, but on a preliminary view, we don't think this is something that really we're in a position to investigate. But very often they will at least have a preliminary investigation to find out what is going on. And they're a very important watchdog which we at Mind value greatly as an independent body who can just keep an eye on what's going on in hospitals and mental nursing homes. I asked Simon whether he thought the aftercare provisions of the Mental Health Act 1983 work, and if not, why not? We have great concerns around the current provision of aftercare under the Mental Health Act of 1983. If somebody's been a detained patient under the Act then Section 117 says they're entitled to support equally from social services and from the health authority once they cease to be a detained patient and they leave hospital. However, it's not specified what level of support they should receive or what this consists of. And because of financial cuts, we know that some local authorities and health authorities have taken the view that they can discharge their duties by providing occasional visits to the home of the individual. Now, there's a particular problem here, which is that the Department of Health have made it clear that support under Section 117, the aftercare provision, should be free to the individual concerned. 
and providing domestic services, providing accommodation, of course, can be very, very expensive for the local authority and equally for the health authority if they get involved in that side of things. The 1948 National Assistance Act, on the other hand, does allow councils to charge for these services and, in fact, in case of providing accommodation, they're actually required to make a charge of what's reasonable for the individual to pay. So we're noticing that increasingly councils are saying, in fact, we're not providing support services and accommodation as part of your aftercare package, but we've done a reassessment under the National Assistance Act of 1948, and this is how much it's going to cost you. We have great concerns about this. We think it's terribly unfair for somebody leaving hospital who really, in many cases, will not have a choice of where they're going to live. It's difficult enough to accept the social services are placing them in a place that they may not have chosen to go, but then to be presented with a bill for the privilege, we think, is very tough. What about guardianship? There is a provision under the Mental Health Act for an individual who social services believe constitutes a risk to themselves or very occasionally a risk to somebody else to be placed under guardianship. This is similar to being put under a compulsory section and taken to hospital, but there's a key difference, which is that they continue to live in the community, but they are under the supervision of a social worker. And the social worker has powers to stipulate where the person should live, to stipulate that they should attend at a clinic for medical treatment, and to stipulate that they should be engaging in some sort of therapeutic activity. In order to receive someone into guardianship, then the ASW has to carry out a formal assessment and again support it with medical recommendations. But this time, the application is made to the social services department, and not surprisingly, it tends to be accepted. However, guardianship is not used very extensively. There are, for example, some twenty to 25,000 detentions in hospital under section in any year, and a handful of guardianship applications are made, and we were talking about hundreds. And the reason is not so difficult to see, because there are no teeth attaching to the powers of the supervisor. The supervisor can say, I want you to live there, I want you to attend hospital for treatment, but if the individual keeps walking away or keeps going back to where they'd much rather be living, or keeps walking out from hospital, there is nothing much that the social worker can do about it. In other words, it needs to proceed by cooperation, consultation, discussion, and try to persuade the individual to cooperate with services. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.